it's the Bible. Not a committee or a conference or a tradition, unless it's a biblical tradition. Not the wisdom of the culture. The Bible. Passage by passage. So we're in 1 Corinthians now. And today, at first glance, our passage, it's not uplifting. At first glance, it's, it's not gentle or loving at a first glance. But as I've looked at this passage over the last weeks, I think I've found it to be probably one of the most loving passages in the Bible. Today we're talking about the seriousness of sin. It's, it's on everything. It's the enemy inside the gates. And here today, Paul is addressing sin specifically found in the church. Now, the world has varying views of sin. And those, those views tend to have motives behind them. The motive is almost always to make a way to do more sin without feeling bad about it. Without you making me feel bad. And our culture, our world has accomplished this for the most part. Now, many of you have watched the, the culture evolve to a positive view of things like abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality, something the Bible's very clear about. If you remember, if you think back over the last few decades, it started out as, okay, so that's sin. Even people who'd never darkened the door of the church would say, now that's sin. And then it became, okay, well, that's just different. It's just different. Yeah. And then I remember whenever, I guess it probably would have been my early teens, I remember starting to hear phrases like, well, that's okay as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. And now it's... Our culture views sin as it's just so brave to live your truth. And, you know, that is what we have turned. That's the evolution of the culture's view on sin. However, as our, our culture marginalizes and relegates the Word of God, the Bible, to being an ancient, bigoted book that has a few decent ideas, as the world and many churches, even in our community, do that. The thing is, God hasn't changed. The truth of these words has not changed. And no matter what, no matter what, the horrifying effects of the sin that we justify those horrifying effects still exist and still come around to bite people who begin to see it as less and less. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 5, while you're turning there, John 1, 14 through 15 says, But each person, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would heed it. I pray that we would see it for its intent and for its power.
Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the first problem in this letter was disunity. Jeremy's preached that, disunity in the church. Now, it, here he's talking about sexual immorality in the church. And specifically, an immorality that non-Christians wouldn't even touch, that it was illegal in Rome. Let's read the whole chapter. He starts out, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that's not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, not with the old stuff, not with the old sin, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, if you think this isn't a fun passage to preach, thanks a lot, Jeremy. Okay, I, I want to see three biblical responses to sin. You've got our response as an individual. You've got the church's response as a whole and as a local church. And then we've got Christ's response. But we start out with, let's look at what, how they responded. He said, you're arrogant. Paul was appalled by their arrogance to sin in their, in their, in amongst them. He called it arrogance and boasting. So this is kind of funny. Were they proud of this sin? How, how were they arrogant and boasting whenever something like this was going on? This is different. This moves beyond covering it up or making less of it. They're kind of proud of it. Well, there's several possibilities because we can see it going on in our culture today. You can imagine the possibilities. It's possible they were bragging about how free they were in Christ. We don't have to worry about it, you know, uh, as... Uh, Matt talked about Romans 6 this morning, and I'm going to get into it later today. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? You know, there's plenty of grace for all the sin that you want to do, so get after it, buttercup. They, they might have been like a modern church, saying, look how accepting 
and how tolerant we are. Or who are we to judge? And that's actually the question that gets answered in this passage. 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19 talks about this attitude and people that carry this attitude. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And that's, that's why our response is to mourn. Our response is sadness. He says, you're proud, you're arrogant about this? Should you not rather mourn? Like, th- this is your natural response. This should, doesn't say it should make you indignant, self-righteous. It doesn't say this should make you even angry. So th- this should break your heart. The automatic response that should naturally come from a Christian is heartbreak. You ever seen someone broken by their sin? Have you ever witnessed it? Have you ever experienced it? Now, it doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't think sin's a big deal. It's like, that's kind of an overreaction. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? It's, you know, everybody screws up. But to someone who's come to realize what sin is, their heart breaks over it. It's sad to them. It tears them apart. The correct view is, is that Jesus died for bad people, and for some reason I find myself needing him. We're supposed to have heartbreak over sin. And a clear understanding of sin not only will it break your heart when you see it yourself or in the world, it'll break your heart when you see it in people that you love. It'll make you sad. You will want those that you love to be free from it. So what we see here in the Corinthian church, it's more than just a couple of bad apples in the church. We see a congregational failure, a failure to hate sin. So that brings up what is your view of sin? How do we see sin? How do we look at it? I think we, we tend to see sin on like a case-by-case basis. You know, this is kind of bad. This is not too bad. Or one sin equals maybe one bad thing happens. And then the infection's over. But that's not what we see in the Bible. I want to try to express to you the fruit of sin in the world. So, do you hate when children have cancer? Do you hate when a loved one dies or the fact that people starve or people are taken advantage of? Do you realize that these things are in the world, have come into their existence because at the present time, sin reigns? That's why these things are here. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because now all of sin. We look at that list of things, and sometimes people like to blame God for those things. 
how would God allow? Why would God let? How, how does this? How could this happen? But we totally fail to blame the presence of sin. Now, I'm not saying that the child with cancer or his parents sinned, so now he's sick. That's not what I'm saying. Yep, everyone involved in the situation are sinners and imperfect. What I'm saying is that sin and evil are so sticky and pervasive that it's actually worse than just that. So it's like, have you ever had your kids get a hold of a sucker and it disappears? But then you find the residue and it's like, oh, that's there. Now it's on me and now it's on that and now it's on that. Sin is like the eternal lollipop has melted in your house. Has melted in your house generations ago. And it's impossibly on everyone and everything. You're trying to fix it. You're trying to clean it up. And it's just getting on more people, on more stuff. It's in everything. Stuff's gumming up. Nothing will, nothing will work. So you go, you go to the sink. Maybe get some hot water. Try to clean it up. But it's there too. It's coming out like it's on everything. It's impossible. It's, it's, it's in everything. It's on everything. And when you go to the place to get it fixed, it's there too. It's in the government. It's in the police force. It's in the church. It's on me. And I make it worse by every few days I open up another lollipop. It just, it's in everything. It gets on everything. Now, you can disagree with the Bible and try to make yourself and mankind not that bad. But it's an undeniable truth that bad things are in the world and that things do seem to be getting worse, even as we become more tolerant for sin. Isn't that ironic? Something's wrong. You know something's wrong. That's why you grieve at a graveside. Something's wrong. This isn't right. There's something if not, we would, we would stand by a grave or watch suffering as if, well, yeah, yeah, this happens. No big deal. That's not your response, is it? Your response is, my brain's short-circuiting. Something's glitching out. This is wrong. This isn't right. This isn't what we were made to be like. The world's remedy so far has been to change the definition then, not to change what it is or to fix the problem or to deal with it. We change the definition then of bad or sin to Oh, something fancy like alternate rather than deal with the problem. Well, the gospel is the hope. It's the only clarity. But first, we have to see sin for what it is, what it does. Otherwise, otherwise you welcome death and hopelessness into your life. So examine yourself. Your heart should break over sin, and more than anything, it should break over your sin. Then Paul gives us the church's response. This is where we're starting to see excommunication in the church. At verse 2, the last half of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, for though I'm absent in the body, I'm present with you in spirit. And as if, I, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who would do such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is a command from Paul. 
And it's not just for this kind of sin. He broadens it. As you go through the chapter, it's not just this one guy doing this really weird, aberrant sin. He goes on and he adds to the list, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. Remove the evil one. This is not politically correct. You don't hear of excommunication hardly at all anymore. It's just, no, we couldn't do that. We, we can't do that. But Paul's not saying this. He's not saying this out of arrogance or meanness. It's quite the opposite if you take the time to look at it. So whenever someone absolutely will not stay off that path of destruction, we've all seen it. We've watched it happen. We grew up in a town, or we live in a town now that has a pretty pervasive undertone of drug use, and I'm sure we've all watched people go through that path of destruction, and with any other sin, it's the same. At some point, you're hurting yourself and everyone around you by shielding them from the consequences. You're twisting the fabric of reality. If your kid goes to touch the hot fireplace and every time you put your hand there and they touch your hand instead, pretty soon you're a burnt up mess and the kid has no idea what reality is, has no idea what damage is, what hurt is, because you've stopped it, you've shielded it, and you've twisted reality. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to let reality rest on their shoulders let that gravity come. So Paul says, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What an absolutely unloving thing to say. But this is one of those places where you can let the Bible interpret the Bible, explain it to you. Because Paul has used language like this before. In other places in the Bible, we find language like this. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he says, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He names these dudes, whom I have handed over to Satan, but that's not the end of the passage, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So handing someone over to Satan, it's not the same as saying send them to hell. That's kind of what you would think. Hand them over to Satan. Well, let me just let them die in their sin. He's still trying to accomplish something in the sinner, even in this situation. And remember, Satan doesn't rule hell. Hell is ultimately for Satan and all who would reject Christ as their Savior. Hell belongs to God. Paul is still trying to accomplish something, even in this person that he's saying, kick him out, hand him over to Satan. Let that reality come to them. He hasn't given up. He's far from it. You have to remember, what is driving this whole thing is Christian love. So even in this passage, that's still the motive. We see something like this pertaining to the flesh being destroyed. We see something like this in Job as well, Job 2.6. And the Lord, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And what did this do to Job? You remember? The very last chapter in Job, Job 42. After all of this had come to pass and Job had gone through all of this, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I'd been told about you. I'd sat in church. I'd heard these things. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, 
I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then Paul himself has experience with this. Paul himself has an experience of Satan having some free reign in his flesh. You remember 2 Corinthians 12? So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And then the next phrase, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So even in this kind of affliction, you can see the love of God working on the person. So it turns out that being physically afflicted can actually be God getting you to a perspective of a better reality. So this is far from kicking someone out because they're not good enough for us. That's what you think of whenever you think of excommunication. Like, oh, I don't, I don't like that word. It sounds like you think you're better than me. You know, get rid of me. There's something eternal going on here. A battle to the death against sin. That's what it is. The goal of biblical excommunication is primarily restoration. That's the goal. The goal isn't so that we look better. Like, I don't want people to know that I associate with so-and-so. I think I'm better than that. The goal is so that so-and-so would be restored. Look at verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. So the goal for the, the person is that they would be restored. There's a goal for the church as well. You remember the Passover. God said, you kill a lamb, mark your doorpost, and when the angel of death comes by, he'll pass over you. And they were in Egypt. And your household will not be touched. They ate the bread without yeast. They were leaving in a hurry. They weren't going to wait for the bread to rise. They were about to experience freedom. You go back to the Passover, you need to remember that. They were about to experience freedom. And when you refer to the Passover, that's what he's referring to. But here's this thing with leaven. So due to the permeating nature of leaven became synonymous with sin. A little bit goes a long way. It's like the two rotten apples. You throw a couple of rotten apples into a barrel of good apples, the rotten apples don't become good. The opposite happens. Sin permeates. It's that stickiness. Gets in everything. Gets on everything. Paul says, your boasting is not good. And this is to paraphrase. Don't you know that tolerating sin will affect everyone? You would leave your house unprotected. You would leave the church unprotected. Would you let this permeating effect of sin come through the church? Remember what you're doing here. Here you're shaping minds. This is where people come to be freed from this junk, from this garbage. People build their perspective of God by being with these people here, hearing this word preached. And that matters. You've been freed from this hateful mess of sin. Why would you want to fraternize with it? We are to be separated from our old life and godless ways. Because we see salvation actually as salvation. 
And the work of the church is to see Christ's work of salvation done. So the church can't tolerate that, can't have that having free reign unchecked in the church. You know what that looks like? Do you remember studying the Underground Railroad in school? They would sneak the slaves out of the south to the north so they could be free. A lot of people sacrificed a lot. It was a very dangerous undertaking that people did to assure that others would experience freedom. So what we've got here with the church tolerating, boasting about sin, it's a set of people so willing to ignore sin in this this haven of life in the church. It's now something that openly tolerates the destruction that they were saved from in this place. It's as if the people operating the Underground Railroad opened a slave auction in the very name of tolerance and freedom. That's how twisted it is for the church to blatantly tolerate sin. And Paul is saying, you fix that. In verse 7, the the Passover lamb was an image of Christ, a sacrifice to give you freedom and life, not oppression and intolerance. This, This situation in Corinth is then the equivalent of, so talking about the Passover, a Hebrew slave in Egypt, not only refusing to put the lamb's blood on the door, but going and hanging out and being the most Egyptian he can while he's just a breath away from total freedom. Just freedom is right there, but no, I'm going to tolerate these other things. Now, there is an expectation placed on believers. We've turned Christian expectation and standards into a bad thing. So here I go, piling on pharisaical, legalistic standards. But the expectation is not so much that you be better than the world. That's a, that's a pretty, that way of seeing things goes sideways pretty quickly. It doesn't work very long with a biblical mindset. Then you go try to live it. It doesn't work. The expectation on a Christian is simple. Live as if Christ died for you. That you would live free from the toxic hold of sin. Act like you actually got saved from that junk. Because it's true. That's why he says in verse 7b, live as if the Passover lamb has come. Because he actually has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb is Christ. The blood has been shed. It's real. It's there for you. Act like it. Romans 6 expresses this very well. Romans 6, 6 says, We know that our old self, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In verse 10 he says, For the death he died, talking of Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign 
in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's, an, there's a blunt expectation that Christians live like they're free from sin. That doesn't mean you're without sin. I'm still in a sinful, dying body, but I don't have to be dominated by a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Salvation is not so you can safely play with death. It's to get you away from it. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging others, outsiders? He's telling them, look, whenever I told you not to associate with Christians who are sinners, I didn't mean outsiders because otherwise you couldn't function in the world. I don't have anything to do with judging outsiders. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We don't judge outsiders because they're not free. They're still slaves to sin. I don't have the same expectation of them as for someone who claims the blood of Christ, who claims to have been changed by the work of God. He says we judge each other. Ouch. Something, something contradicts there. I don't, I don't know about that. What we see here is that you should rather be judged. You should rather be judged by a brother than an outsider judged by God. That's who you would rather be. You'd rather be in the church of people who love you than outside under the judgment of God without being covered by his son's blood. But this implies an established relationship. So whenever we talk about confronting each other with our sin and people judging you in the church, here's what we think about. Think about somebody who maybe hasn't been here long, doesn't know very many people, and you think of so-and-so, Fred, coming over. There's not a Fred in the church, is there? Okay. There better not ever be a Fred in the church because that name gets used a lot for illustrations. He comes over and says, I see something in your life. Well, I barely know you. I just showed up. That's the fear. That's the thought. What this implies in Christian love is that you have real relationships. There are people in this church who I am absolutely fine and comfortable with coming to me and saying, hey, I noticed something and it scares me for you. I've noticed something and it breaks your heart. It breaks my heart for you. You're supposed to have those kind of relationships established in the church. But all this talk of judgment, that's a good word for our culture today. People don't want to feel judged. It makes us feel bad. It makes us uncomfortable for who we are. And then it seems like it puts others on a pedestal. And we hate that. You know, we don't, we don't like to see that. The reality of the moral implications, the reality of whatever they're saying to us really doesn't matter. It's just, I don't want you to make me feel judged. And then there's that problem with that other verse. Who remembers Jesus saying, judge not? Who remembers Paul saying, judge? A lot less people. Let's look at that. We have to, this looks like a contradiction. Whenever you see what looks like a contradiction in the Bible, that means there's something hidden there. That means there's something you're supposed to look into. That's why people say, ah, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. That is always a person who does not love the Word. The person who loves the Word sees something that sees, seems opposite, and they get a little bit excited. It's like, oh, there's something here that I haven't thought about. There's something here that I don't realize. There's something here I get to look into. So, Matthew 7, 1. 
Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So there's the first reason. Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, why? Because with that judgment you pronounce, you're going to be looked at. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me fix that for you. Let me take that speck out of your eye. When there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We, we tend to ignore verse 5. So what we tend to ignore the fact that there's still an action point. It doesn't say just leave it alone. Don't judge people because then they're going to look harder at you. It doesn't end. Judge not that you be not judged. It goes on. It says the reason you shouldn't judge is because if, if I go to someone who's an inch taller than me and say, you're short. Who are you calling short? You're shorter than me. So that's common sense. That same standard is going to be held up. And then it implies self-inspection. It says, first take the log out of your own eye. I love when Jesus uses hyperbole. Like, it's supposed to look comical. It's supposed to be a silly illustration for us. There's this thing sticking out of your eye, and you're like, you, you got something there, buddy. Let me get it for you. It's supposed to be that over the top. But it doesn't even end there. It doesn't say just tolerate each other's garbage and go on because we've all got garbage. Just leave it alone. There's still work here. It's work. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is what a Christian should say to this. God, do any eye surgery on me necessary. I want rid of my sin. And then I want others to experience the freedom that I've attained. It's still Christian love is still driving this. The idea doesn't have to do with setting up levels of moral superiority. You've got to judge a cop, a citizen, a God. It doesn't have to do with not making someone else feel bad or feel judged. It has to do with eradicating the enemy of all existence, sin. And if you sit there and say, well, I, I don't judge people, then fat lot of good you are to your local church. And a fat lot of good to you, you are to the person dying and going to hell or the person in bondage to sin or living under the effects of evil. And that's everyone. And if, if the church has taught you that, the, that this attitude of, well, I just don't judge people, is what morality is, then God help us all. It turns out that what actually makes you feel better than other people is the idea that not calling sin, sin, is morality. So before you go and you give yourself a gold star for exceptional morality, for not judging people, you have to ask yourself, did you fail to see the seriousness of sin? Did you think that by intentionally not considering someone else's sin, you've ignored its effect? Because that's what you've done to that person. That person that has been put in your life that you have that relationship that is falling apart. 
And by you saying, I should say something, but I, I don't want to judge. You're ignoring the effect that it's going to have on their life. Have you failed, Christian, to see the influence of sin in you, in your family, in your church as devastating? You say, I don't want my kids to think they're better than anyone else. Well, guess what? Giving them a right understanding of the gospel fixes that. And actually, it's the only consistent remedy to that problem. You go down any other pathway, you're going to run into so many problems. The gospel is the only thing that simultaneously addresses sin and keeps you from seeing yourself as better than other people. It's the only thing. So ignoring sin, ignoring sin is ultimately a total failure to love people well. That's what we're seeing here. So if your goal is like Job to see and know God or to be free from this hateful, sticky mess of sin, then this is the most loving chapter in the Bible for that person. And look, to go from the cast out one, the one that says remove him from your midst, and the restored one is so simple. Job said, I see God, so now I see myself better. And the response is, I repent. Repentance is like that. I see this and I went away from it. I want to turn around. This person in, in uh, Corinthians 5, that's all it took. That's all it took was, oh, I hate this sin. I want to be away from sin. I've got to get away from sin. Repent. Excommunication, it's a process. It's a process of love meant to lead to repentance. And then that then becomes the lifestyle of freedom. So the failures of the Corinthian church, they failed to hate sin. They failed to love the sinner. And then they failed to honor their Savior. That brings us to Christ's response to sin. Christ's response to sin is to cleanse. So God's response to sin, it is just and it is necessary that sin be punished. Mercy without justice, it's not grace. Mercy without justice is perverted justice. God hates sin and he takes it seriously. It perverts his creation, and it's literally the cause of everything bad on earth. So God has to do something about it, or he's not God. He's not perfect. He's not who he says he is. He's just, he's just a overblown deity if he doesn't do something about that, which is in contrast to him. Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, in covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, because of this stuff, the wrath of God is coming. God fully acknowledges and punishes sin. And actually, God has punished sin for all time and completely. And on top of that, he provided a way to be cleansed from it. Through Christ. That's what that whole cross thing was about. He says, not only 
I'm going to punish sin, but I'm going to be the one punished for it. And through that punishment, you're just not, you're not just set at zero. Okay, at least I'm not guilty anymore. You're set at positive Christ's righteousness. So he fixed sin, he cleanses it, and he gives you the standing, the not guilty, and he gives you the not just guilty, but you can now have all the morality of Christ. The call is to live like that if you have been saved, if you have repented, if you have come to know Jesus as your Savior. Failing to see sin as serious does one more really, really bad thing. It makes the cross seem small. It makes the sacrifice of Jesus seem as not that much. Whenever you shrink sin, you also shrink the purpose and the work of Christ. We like to see, well, think of, think of everything bad in the world. Here in church, think of a bunch of bad stuff. Think of everything you see on the news. Think of the death, the destruction. Think of all the little problems in your life. All, everything that's been brought about by your sin or someone else's sin. Think of it in a pile. And then think of your sin. We tend to see this pile of all this garbage in the world. And then we, we've got our sin. This is my sin. And then we put a little bitty cross on top of that. And that's our view of the cross. Jesus saved me from my sin. But we fail to see the cross as bigger. We fail to stretch that cross and make it see it big enough to cover this. The problem is huge. So we had to have a bigger, a bigger solution. Romans 5 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The problem is impossibly huge. But something bigger was done to fix it. You know, we, we lose so much joy in our Christian lives because we don't see our salvation as a big enough deal. Because we didn't see the problem as a big enough deal. Probably wasn't that bad anyway. We don't see it as eternally damning the way the Bible shows us. Are you happy to be pulled from the jaws of death? Are you living free from that enslavement? 1 Peter 3, 13 through 19. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says the reason you got saved was because you saw that you were actually lost. 
when you got saved, you were freed from the things that, that condemned you. Think about someone on a shipwreck being saved out of icy water, out there in the dark, alone, floating in the water, just hoping a boat comes by. You were well aware you were going to die. Like, that was the only other option. It's as bad as it gets. Then someone comes along and pulls you out. Don't look back fondly at the icy water. It was killing you. And those lost in the water who don't see it as deadly, they're going to die unless they realize they have to be saved from it. But this doesn't mean that you're going to live perfectly. If that were so, that whole passage would be pointless, be unnecessary. You will struggle with sin issues that you were born with until you leave this fallen world. He's saying, remember and live like you love the one who saved you. Don't go on living like you're drowning. Don't jump back in the water. Live as if you were saved to be warm, dry, to walk on dry land. Seeing sin as sin and refusing to tolerate to tolerate, it's acknowledging how big of a deal salvation is, how big of a deal the cross is. The fact that God humiliated himself by enduring the consequences of sin should tell us how bad sin really is. That should be enough to say, oh, that must be a bad deal. If Jesus did that, if God did that, then what he's working against must be a pretty big deal. That must be bad. We need to adjust our view of sin. That'll adjust our view of the cross. Have you been freed? If not, you need to call on Christ and repent. Heavenly Father, may we obey your word. May we not 